I'm going to do is create more tensions and struggles in your heart today. So, okay, let's pull it together. I, I should do that literally, make all of you guys sit in the same section, but that's all right. <clears throat> hey, Walter Clark, how you doing, buddy? And Junior's here today. That must mean his wife's doing relatively good. Oh, that's a miracle. <laughs> well, Father, we do thank you for your kindness and your graciousness to us. I'm thankful for the, the preservation of earthly life in Sherry. And we just, we give you praise for that. Um, some of the people know, and I, I know, but I, I know that you have taken Art and Mary's dad, Ed, to be with you. And um, you're merciful in that as well. And I pray that you would comfort the Duns. Uh, I pray that you would uh, help them to navigate the next short season of their life, but then also just ongoing, especially Mary. She's taken care of her parents for a long time. And I pray, Father, that you would be merciful to her, help her to grieve, help her to rest. Um, and I just, I pray, Father, for this class that you would help us to study your word and that it would, um, it would make a difference in us, that we would be different people. Uh, our faith would be stronger. Our lives would be more in line with what you want. We pray, Father, that you would be merciful to us in our journey until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. 7 a.m.? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sherry, we're glad to see you upright. <laughs> yeah, just she called me just, um, I don't know, 8 o'clock. Uh, he started to be extremely agitated at 3 a.m. They called in the hospice nurse, and they started uh, giving more morphine to him. And, and I think he must have been so agitated that it just, in order to get him calm, was quite a bit of morphine probably. And then he just died at 7. So. Mm -hmm. so you guys all have to sing out well this morning because we don't have a pianist, right? So we'll just have an acapella sing this morning. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're looking at verse 12 through 16. We're kind of in the middle of that. So I will read this, and then Barry, if you can give that microphone to uh, Ryan, I guess, then he can pass that around for future. So 12 through 16. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So, what are the... What are the questions that come to your mind as you read that passage? I don't want your statements about what it's saying. I just want to know what questions pop up in your mind as you read this. That's a good question. So how can an unbeliever be holy? Okay. Any other questions? Right, so how are the children holy? In particular, the fact that the unbelieving spouse is made holy is part of what enables the children to be holy. Yeah, okay. Okay, so how can a, how can a wife or husband, the, the believer, save the spouse? Okay. Good questions. More? Okay, so I, not the Lord. That's good. Okay. Anything else? Okay, so, um, so um, question. So, so I'm going to call this because um, I think I know what you're getting at. He says, unless the unbeliever leaves, you stay with him. Is that true in all cases? Particularly in cases of abuse. That's a, that's a good question. Okay, Wasn't one I was even going to deal with, but I will. <laughs> it's just because you're asking it. That's good. So, others? So, is, is, right, unbelief grounds for divorce. And, and why? Why might it be? That's actually the, that's the question that he's addressing specifically. Um, some believing spouses said, I need to get out of this marriage to an unbeliever because, and, and, that's, and so that's why he's a- answering this. Sorry, I'm putting all this stuff around my, my other uh, connections here, so drawings. 
Nobody even asked the question, what does he mean by holy? I guess you guys all got that one figured out. <laughs> huh? Ah. Okay. All right. So the, actually, this is a very, very important question. And I think that you cannot... I've read a lot of different commentaries on this, talked to a lot of people. I don't think you can make sense of it except by a covenantal understanding of the text, but you can let me know what you think in a little bit. Other questions? Okay. Where do I want to start this? All right. I'm going to start with taking us to 2 Corinthians 6. Um, you got the mic, Ryan? All right. I'm going to let you read first. Read 14 to 18. Yep. All right, so let's notice a few things in there. Number one, uh, when a believer is considering marriage, he should only consider someone who is a believer, right? And what is the basis for that? What does he say? Well, he gives some kind of arguments for this. So just you can sh shout these out, and I'll repeat them. We don't need the microphone to. What are the reasons? Right, so the believer's righteous, the unbeliever's wicked, and he, it's like night and day. It's not like there's a, you know, say, oh, he's a good guy, he's nice. You know, it's just like, no, if you're an unbeliever, you're, you're wicked. If you're a believer, you're righteous. So that's one. What else? Right, so, that, so that's right. So God is perfect light. He, there can be no darkness in him. So if the believer is light, then he can't really have fellowship with that, which is darkness. So they should be separate. Okay. All right. What else? Right. So, okay. So if I'm in Christ, I'm the believer, then Christ is my head and Lord. Who's the head and Lord of the unbeliever? Satan. Belial is a word for Satan. So you got, you know, it's like, okay, Christ and Satan coming together in a marriage is the way he's talking about it. Right. So um, then he gives one more, 16. 
Yeah, so in the temple, um, would you bring an idol? Of course, the Old Testament people of God did do this. But uh, in the temple, would you bring an idol into God's temple? It's like, would you take the idol into God's house where there's God's living and then you have the, the idol at the same time? No, don't do that. So he's, he's making some pretty strong arguments uh, why a believer should not marry an unbeliever, okay? And ultimately, he, he has this, um, this quote, this poem, uh, I will make a dwelling among them. He's basically saying, just as God, this is my temple right here, this is the laver, this is the, the uh, altar, this is the holy place, and this is the holy of holies, uh, and this is the outer um, courtyard. Uh, God says he is here, Yahweh. He's dwelling there. And then he, he makes this statement, you as a believer and the whole church as a group of believers, God is dwelling in you. Okay, so that's his big statement, right? And so he's, he's saying uh, very strongly that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, nothing which is unclean in, in, uh, should be connected with God. Okay? That's a pretty strong statement. <clears throat> Go back to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> so Paul says, and this goes, I think, to Caroline's question, I, not the Lord. Okay. In Jesus' day, Jesus is telling people who are all Israelites what they should be doing. Uh, future. But in Paul's day, he's, the gospel is going into areas, and let's say um, John and Leanne are married, they're Gentiles, they're unbelievers, the gospel gets preached, and John comes to know Christ, and Leanne doesn't. So if you take everything that he said in 2 Corinthians, and I realize that's written afterwards, but Paul would have preached this kind of stuff, if you take that, that understanding, Paul's, or John's thinking, I am married to someone who's connected with Satan. And that can't be. So you can understand why John would say, maybe I need to just get out of this marriage. Right? Because who I am in Christ. And so um, the Corinthians are starting to think this way. Uh, can I actually be, remain married? That's the question. Is unbelief grounds for divorce? Can I remain married with someone who is unclean? What does that mean? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, prior to the, the Mosaic Law? Yeah, but, but I would say that even in that regards, new covenant, new creation trumps old creation. So in other words, basically if John's a new creation, should he still be married to an old creation? You see what I'm saying? So there's a, 
And this gets back to how the, the uh, Corinthians were, we use this term, over-realized eschatology. So it's eschatology is the end times, and we as Christians are living between this present world and the eternal world. And so we're, we're like tied both places, okay? We belong to that world, but we're living here. And over-realized eschatology is, is thinking so much that you belong to the new creation that, you, that it messes up how to live in the daily lives of this creation, okay? That's what I mean. Does that make sense, over-realized eschatology? So, um, I drew up this, this, I, this next question is, what does holy sanctified mean? Um, I drew up this. This is a picture of Israel. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. This is Israel. This is Jerusalem. If you read in the Old Testament, God considered the entire nation to be holy. Now, to say that the entire nation is holy cannot possibly mean that every individual in the nation is saved. Right? Then, within this nation of Israel, Jerusalem is also called the holy city. So, there's a, there's a type of holiness here. There's even a stronger holiness here because Jerusalem itself is the throne of the king, which is pointing to Christ as the eternal king, but it's, it's throne. So the holy city, it's, it's a, in and itself is something that is holy, and you're supposed to see that in the city is, is one of holiness. But then even within the city of, of Jer- Jerusalem, you have the temple. And so you have the courtyard which is even a stronger level of holiness, right? And then, because only, some people could get into here, the worshiper, but only the priest could get into the holy place because they have an even stronger idea of holiness, right? So they get to go in here, but not all the priests could even go into here. Only the high priest once a year could get into there. So there's this idea of holiness, and you use the word set apart, but I think it's even... Set apart is, is, is good, but it's more than that because what it does is you have to be made holy in order to be close to the presence of God. Okay, you following this? If, if someone who was a regular worshiper tried to get here, I don't care how good of a person they are, how much they you know, sought to be ethically, morally pure in their life, they couldn't get to there. Because they're not holy to be there. Now, I'm not, I don't even know how to quite define this holiness. It's like a holiness by declaration. God just says you are holy. Um, so, of course, your, your moral and ethical life is to be in line with this type of holiness. But it's not quite the same thing. Are you following this? So... So this sense of holiness. Now, you as a believer are the temple of God, meaning it's like you're the holy of holies and the God is dwelling in you. You're this holy. So you, and you know this from your study of the New Testament, Hebrews, you have access to the throne of God at any moment because God has declared you 
holy. Okay? So it's all about getting into and close to the presence of God, this holiness. Okay? Are you, I'm going to open that up to questions for a moment. Does, does that, what I'm saying to you is this type of holiness, this understanding of holiness, other than just moral purity, is what's going on here. Is that making sense to you a little bit, Caroline? Okay. Because he even makes a distinction in the passage between being holy and being saved. See, we think holy saved. But that's not the way he talks about it. Because if, a, if an unbelieving spouse can be declared holy even though they're not saved, that's, that's, that's weird language to us. Because we just think holiness saved. And that's not what, what Paul's saying. He's talking about this type of what I call covenantal holiness. It's the holiness of being able to be near to God. This gathering of saints, particularly at the worship hour, is a holy gathering. You, as members of the church, are brought into the very presence of God. I say this a lot at the beginning of the worship ship. The most important person in this room is the one you can't see. His presence, he has promised to gather with his people. This is a holy place. Now, when all of you guys leave, this building is not really holy. But when you come to gather for worship, he, this is a holy place because you are his temple and you are holy. Now, we don't always feel that because we allow people into this worship service who we know are unbelievers. We want them to come, right? But think about communion. Communion is, a, is an activity that's just for God's people. So if you're outside of this, it would be like an uncircumcised Philistine coming into the temple would be like an unbeliever actually partaking of communion. You see how that's like you have been made holy. Do we know that every person that partakes of communion is truly saved? No, we don't. One day God will sort out the sheep and the goats, you know. But, we, but every person who is enabled to partake of communion, only the holy people can do that, not the unholy people, okay? Okay, so, um, yeah. Yes, yes, but you have been declared holy. It's the declaration. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going I'm to make a distinction. Holiness because of essence and holiness because of association. Okay? God is holy because he is holy in his essence, in his very being. You are not holy that way. You are holy by association with the Holy One. You see the difference? So, so in, in the Old Testament, even though God would say that an Israelite, here's this little Israelite walking around, he is in some sense holy. If he comes into contact with someone who is unholy, 
What happens in the Old Testament? This person becomes unclean. The Holy One becomes unclean. But what happens in the Old Testament if Yahweh comes next to someone who is unclean? They're made clean. Or they just get incinerated. <laughs> but, but if God comes near them, it, it actually, his presence actually makes them holy. And, and so, uh, just like the priest, if you know, he could come in here, he could get incinerated. <laughs> you know, even the high priest could be that way. But the idea is that when God, and think about this, and, and this is a gospel idea, because Lori said that, um, I'm trying to remember now, what did Lori say? What did you just say, Lori, a minute ago? Yes. When he calls us, we're unholy. So how are you made, how are you saved? Right, but like, God doesn't just sit, sit back here and say, all right, Clark, repent and believe. The gospel is, is Clark, God coming to this unholy Clark who is uncircumcised guy, and he comes to him, and he actually, in spiritual ways, touches Clark, brings him alive, raises him up, and then Clark repents and believes. So it's like it's God's coming near to you that makes you a Christian. All right? So that's the whole gospel. You cannot, in and of yourself, save yourself. So how are you saved? Well, God comes to you. I got you, Dan. Um, uh, it's a gift, but I just want you to hear, it's the nearness to God that saves. But it's the sin that separates you from God. So you see God's dilemma, right? He wants to crush you because of your sin, but at the same time, he has to come near to you to save you. This is the dilemma of the gospel. And this is why it's made uh, so beautiful with the death of Christ because God has removed the wrath over you, and now he's free to come near you. Okay? Go ahead, Dan.
No, that's, that's really good. Right, that's good. Okay, so let me just keep going. So look in verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And, and the SV uses because of, and I don't, it's not a bad term because it's your association with your wife that makes you holy. But the word is just in. The Greek word is in. And I think it's just, it's the idea that there's an association with. In, your, in the believer, the unbeliever is made holy. Okay, it's just through that association. Okay, now, um, obviously it cannot mean that the unbeliever is made into a believer. But it does mean that the, the uh, human believer is really like this holy of holies. If you were just a person out here, then the unbelieving husband would make you unclean. But because you are so closely connected to Yahweh, and he dwells in you, you are actually, in some sense, making clean the unbeliever. It's similar to Jesus when he walked this earth. If there is somebody with leprosy, and Jesus touches the person with leprosy, does he get leprosy? Does he become unclean? No, he makes them clean, right? Because that's what God does. He's holiness in essence. And you as the believer, even though you're holy by association, you as a believer are really as close as you can get to holiness by essence as, as you can be. Does that make sense? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's pretty special. Okay? So these, these Corinthians are thinking, man, if I stay with my unbelieving spouse, then I'm going to be made unclean. He's like, you got it all wrong. You're actually, in some sense, making them holy. Like as, as if Jesus were walking around touching them. That's how powerful your association with Christ is dwelling in your heart. And we don't think of ourselves that way as Christians. But that's true. Okay, so then he says, if this were not true, then your children would be unclean. Now think about that. Why would the... If you as a believer, you actually purify the unbeliever... How would your children be unclean if that unbelieving spouse was not purified? You follow my question? How would the kids be unclean if the unbelieving spouse was not made holy? Then the kids would be unclean. Why? Yeah, you're, but you're, you're still thinking in terms of nature. He's saying that this, the, the, the kid's association with their unclean parent would make them unclean. See the association? It's not nature. We always talk about this as like um, influence. and you know, I don't think that's the issue. So we, we the unbelieving spouse doesn't make the believer spouse unclean. Why? Because he's got the Holy Spirit in him. Do the kids necessarily have the Holy Spirit in them? Nope. They're kind of like this Israelite here walking around. And if they come into contact, close contact with the unclean, they'll be made unclean. But Paul says that's not the way it works. Because you, you as the believer, 
you actually, in some sense, make your spouse holy so that the whole household is holy so that your kids are holy. By association or by your character? Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah? Oh, this, is, this would be like, this is Mike speaking and not Paul, right? Because <laughs> he says, this is me, not Jesus. Well, this is me, not Paul. Because I don't know that Paul deals with that issue. Uh, it could, yeah, it certainly could be an issue. And so I have to, I'm not prepared to work that through yet. So that's a great question. I, I have to think about that. Um, so, um, but, nope. I think that is, that is not what's driving Paul's thinking. Of course, unbeliever. I mean, he could have said, you know, get out of there because your kids are going to be influenced by an unbeliever and you should get out here and not be influenced by them. He's not thinking that way. He's not thinking of the influence. He's talking about the child's holiness before God. Now, what, if, you, if you have holiness, what can you do? Pray. You can enter into the worship of God and not be crushed. See, our children have access to God's presence even before they are converted and being changed. From day one, you can tell your children, you can come into the presence of God because you are holy. You have a holy standing. Like regardless of whether they're actually personally converted yet or not. This is what it means to be covenantal. That's why we think of our kids as part of the church and not outside of the church. We, dis- we disagree with Baptists on this. To the Baptist, if you were going to divide, and I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna affirm my Baptist friends here in a moment, but if this is the church, and the church is called holy because God dwells with his people, then kids are allowed to enjoy that. They're a part of that, whether or not they're personally saved or not. Now, eventually, if they grow up and they in themselves refuse to believe, then they're going to be kicked out of the church. They're going to be excommunicated. They're going to leave the church. And we're praying that they would personally embrace Christ and be for themselves united to Christ. But even through their association with their believing parent, and even the holiness made to the unbelieving parent, they are in a holy state and can therefore have access to God. We follow this? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent illustration of this. Yep. Yep. So, yes, and? Uh, take that to her. I just want everybody to hear the question. Uh, Paul doesn't say that. Um, because, what does he say? 
about the unbelieving adult in the situation. If he leaves, he leaves. Would the unbelieving adult still be considered holy after he's left? Nope. I think the same thing it goes with uh, adult children. If they, they grow up, they're, they're, they're adult children, they, they are moving their own way, they want to go. That's why I tell adult children, as, as they're, see, we have a strong emphasis on uh, being examined and coming forth for communing membership in our church. Because the, the children have to embrace the faith for themselves. There's no grandparents making their grandkids holy. You following this? Doesn't go multi generational. In fact, in the time of Jonathan Edwards, there's something called the halfway covenant. So you'd had a covenant child who grew up in a covenant home, was themselves baptized, but had never come forward for communion membership. Then they get married, and then they want to actually have their children baptized. And it was a big debate, so whether you could or could not, because the, the adult who was himself baptized never really affirmed the faith for himself. Now he still wants to baptize his kid, and, and Jonathan Edwards was like, no, no, that doesn't work that way. But some people did, because you have this tendency to have this sentimentalism with your kids and grandkids. Do you want them baptized? Well, that's not the way it works, because it all, Paul is dealing with this beautiful picture of the family it's a special unit from creation, God ordained for them to be one. He's creating that. And so now he's also trying to understand that relationship as well as this newfound oneness with Christ. And he's trying to see how those two fit together. And that's what he's dealing with, okay? So did that answer your question, Ann? It doesn't go on indefinitely. So... Um, Mm-hmm. Esau was holy, even though he wasn't holy, <laughs> right? And so this is this, and this is why, as a paid Baptist church, covenantal baptism, we baptize our children because in the Old Testament they baptized, they, they circumcised their children, not because just the physical circumcision guaranteed spiritual circumcision. It didn't, but they were. It was a sign of the covenant promises given to the parent and the child, and therefore they are brought into that covenant, okay? So that's what we would argue. Uh, I'm not arguing for child baptism, but I do think that this passage lays groundwork and helps us to understand how our children can be holy with not thinking that they're actually saved, right? <clears throat> God has called you to peace. So he doesn't, he doesn't want there to be ongoing battle in the home like this over Christ. And he's just basically saying, okay, don't, don't force them to stay um, if they want to go. Now, uh, I think that when he says, how do you know whether or not your, your connection with them might save them, I think this comes back to this whole presence of God with them. It's not just how persuasive you could be. You could be persuasive with someone who's not a believer. That's not the point. I think it's back to this idea of closeness with God's presence. God 
saves us by coming close to us, the incarnation. In this marriage relationship, it's possible in God's sovereign hand that he's going to use his presence in you to actually bring that other person to saving faith. Because he's living in you. So it's not so much how persuasive you are or different things, it's that there's actually this God of the universe dwelling in you and he's going to work through you to actually redeem that other person. But it's, it's not a guarantee even in that. He says might, might happen, right? That happened. That's right. And so I've always been encouraged. My dad's a, an unbeliever. My mom is a believer. I've always been encouraged that he has remained in that relationship because he actually places himself every day in this sphere of God's presence. And uh, to this day, I haven't seen him you know, really receive Christ, but I have seen his heart soften in a lot of ways over many years. And so, um, But that's all God's grace. It's not like, if I'm just... You know, if my mom is just perfect as the parent, I mean, as the, as the spouse, then she'll somehow be able to work salvation in my, that's not the, it's not that kind of work. It's just the association and God choosing to sovereignly work through you as the spouse, because that's what he loves to do. He loves to work through families. It's actually what we hope he'll do with our kids. Yeah, you can focus on all the things you want to do right to kind of raise your kids up in the Lord, and that's important. But what's the real cause of whether your child's saved or not? God's grace. Him just reaching down and saving them, right? And so you're trusting for God to do that same work. Okay. This is, I want to jump to get to Jim's question. And Jim, you mentioned that it's, I don't think this is the, the heart of this passage. But I think it's necessary to answer this because sometimes it says, if your unbelieving spouse doesn't physically leave you, then you're, you're just, you have no grounds for ever separating from the person. And I don't think this is a, a hard thing to work through. You can, in your own mind, wrestle with it. I, get, I can give you a lot of articles to read about it and stuff. But I would include, I've come to the conclusion as a pastor, that if there is enough physical abuse or even emotional spiritual abuse, I'm not talking just a harsh word here and there, but I'm talking about true, and this is a judgment call. And I think as, as uh, pastors and as counselors, this is a hard judgment call. But there are times when the abuse is severe enough that I feel justified as a pastor telling the believing spouse, separate. So th that's, that's my answer to that. Mm -hmm. that's right and the idea is this you can leave your spouse in more ways than just physical i think that's primarily the case here physical leaving geographically moving out but i think that it's possible if you're beating your spouse you have left them you've you know this is not just we're not getting along or whatever you know this is you know serious so so i think that even though you haven't left them in proximity, you've even done worse than leaving them in proximity. You're actually just destroying them. And this passage does say that there should be peace. So to just live in a home where you are beaten down by an abuser is not what I think Paul is talking about here. And I think it took the church a long time 
to come to this position. I'm glad I live in the 21st century because I think if you lived in the 1800s, they would have said, ah, no, unless it just, you're stuck. Yeah, he's beating me. I, no, you're stuck. But I, I'm not saying everybody said that, but I, a lot of people kind of interpreted that way, and um, that's not where I stand today. Does that answer your question? <clears throat> Mm-hmm. 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 So, how are the children holy? They are not holy in essence. We're not telling them that they're born again. They're holy by association. Okay? Um, they, I believe that sometimes people say, well, you believe in infant baptism because of this, but what about the adult unbelieving spouse? Why don't you baptize him? You know, and that's just... To me, that's just ridiculous because if somebody is refusing to be baptized, how can you baptize them, right? The same thing if you had a, let's say uh, your children were like teenagers when you come to know the Lord. Well, as a pastor, you just are like, okay, do you believe this? I mean, because if they're actively saying, no, I don't, you're not going to force baptism on them because their parents are a believer, right? You're, you're going to talk to them personally. So this usually deals with kids that are, you know, young, grade school, you know, age, uh, sometime under the age of 12, where they basically just say, yeah, I'm doing, I'm with my parent. I'm associated with them. I don't know if I'm believing or unbelieving, but this is the case. So, um, so children holy. Uh, the unbeliever is only holy through their association, uh, not because of personal belief and holiness at this point uh, of essence. Um, this I, not the Lord, is basically, this is a situation that Paul is dealing with that Jesus didn't necessarily specifically deal with, even though he laid down the principles of it. So, all right, did I answer questions that you have? Make it as muddy as possible. <clears throat> that, um, right, right, so... Um, this comes back to our understanding of sin and what I call perpetual sin. So, if let's just say a person does, not that this ever happens in the world, but let's just say that a believing person gets married to an unbeliever. That never happens, right? Uh, I know that never happens in the world. Even, I mean, Paul said don't do it. So you would think everybody in the church would not do it, right? So from Paul's statement, you, you would say you have clearly violated what Paul said was to not do. That's a sin. Well, okay, now you're, you have committed the sin. You've gotten married to an unbeliever. Then even though it's not the exact situation Paul was talking about, two unbelievers, one hears the gospel and believes, that, that, that person was already in the gospel, and he went to be married to an unbeliever. That was wrong. That was sin. What, get, get divorced now? Then you go right back to this principle and say, no, no, you can live in a, in a healthy relationship between a believer and an unbeliever, and, and you can go ahead and do that. So it's not perpetual sin, right? It's not like, I've done that sin, and therefore I've got this big you know, letter on my chest all my life. I, I'm the one who married an unbeliever. That's not the way God deals with it. He doesn't think that way. You should repent of getting married to an unbeliever, and you should remain and try to love that unbeliever within reason, right? 
That, that happens too. Yep. So Paul's laying down principles. He's not, he's not giving every specific case, but that's an excellent point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, because you God has uh, I don't know who uh, talks about these spheres. Uh, I, I know I'm thinking of the book, but like there's family sphere, there's the church sphere, and sometimes those you know, they're overlapping, you know, and sometimes they're not overlapping. And so uh, I when I go home to be with my family, a lot of times I'm functioning in a, in a family sphere, not in a church sphere, right? Um, and, and you, just because my dad is not in the church doesn't mean I still can't love him as a member of my family and my father that, you know, did so much for me in my life. So, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, early on, especially, I mean, I wrote my dad letters, kind of explaining the gospel to him, trying to help him understand everything and talk to him as much as I could. And at some point, I had to just kind of step back and say, okay, I've, I've done enough direct kind of, come on, dad, <laughs> to just say, okay, let's just live. And um, I will say that my wife, there she is in the back of the room, uh, two months ago, three months ago, we were up there with my parents, um, and uh, I didn't even know she did this, but she, at some point, was talking to my dad and asked him about his faith again and had a nice conversation with him. And praise God for my beautiful wife to do that. So, uh, mm-hmm, 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 that's right, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm always amazed. I, we start the class, and there's like, Six people here. And then I look out and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of you here. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so if you think you could help someone outside of this room understand what holiness by association is rather than holiness of essence, you think you could help them understand in this passage that when it says the kids are holy, it's not saying saved. You know? And it's not saying that there's some kind of like, God has set them apart in such that they are now this unique guarantee of whole, of grace and will be saved. It's not. It's just that they're in the they're in this realm of of, of holiness. I th- oh, did you hear that? The easiest way is just go back to the old covenant. Think about how circumcision functioned in the Old Testament, and it, oh, that makes sense. I believe that Paul comes up with this understanding not because of some grandiose new revelation from God. He just looked at the Old Testament covenant of circumcision. How does it work back there? Oh, it works like that today in our lives. <laughs> well, see, girls, are, that's, it's clear that only the boys are the ones that are holy. The girls were never holy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
So that's, but this is, a, these are all good things. So in the Old Testament, you had uh, this concept. In the New Testament, it actually expands. So the concept of holiness in the Old Testament meant you had to be an Israelite. And, you know, you had to accept all of the Mosaic law, which is why in the New Testament they're always asking this question. Those Gentiles, what do they have to do to really be a part of us? Well, maybe they need to take on the whole Mosaic law, be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Because the Gentiles, even if they don't accept all the Mosaic law, and I'm talking about the ceremonial laws, you know, the days of feasting and the foods and everything, even if they don't accept that, the Gentiles are made a part of the family of God simply by faith in Christ because they're association with Christ. You are, are just as good as the Old Testament saints because you are connected to Christ by faith alone. That's everything. And you're going to hear that in the, in the sermon this morning. In the Old Testament, we had men... And the women were holy by association to men, okay? But in the New Covenant, you'd clearly see women. Now, I'm not saying that, that women weren't directly connected to God and salvation in the Old Testament. I'm just saying covenantally speaking, it was through their connection with the men. But in the New Testament, it's clear that women are, it's expanded to include women. This is why in this passage... Paul does not just say, if the husband has an unbelieving wife, then she is made holy. What does he say? He says, if the wife is believing, her husband is made holy. You see how that's an expansion. You, as women, now have the Holy Spirit in you and such that you can actually sanctify your husband, which would have been kind of misunderstood. The Old Testament, that would have been hard for them to grasp, right? Go ahead. I think so, yeah, yeah, and I, and so here's here's what I think you have to believe though if you say that children are no longer members of the covenant. In this little Old Testament situation, kids were made holy, no question about that. They even got the sign of circumcision. Now, as God expands the covenant to include Gentiles and women, kids are now out. No longer holy. You got to think of them as outside of the covenant. Now you think about this. These early Christians, many of them are Jews. And you tell them your kids are outside of the covenant? They say, what kind of a promise is that? But that's what we do when we tell our our uh, children that you're out there. And I get the reason. I said I was going like, to like talk about the Baptists in a good way. As Presbyterians, and as a lot of Reformers, when we baptized our children, we said that our kids were in the covenant in every way. We should presume regeneration. We should think that they're saved. We should think that they're guaranteed salvation. And they should just be established in that. And the Baptists come along and say, that's not right. Your kid has to be converted. He has to be born again. Which are things that Jesus taught. And so there is a sense where your kids are not in every way connected to Christ. 
and they come to be connected to Christ through faith. But I would say that that was a part of the Old Covenant as well. And you're going to hear this this morning in the sermon. In the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to hear the statement, you circumcise your heart. Oh, you mean I, my, my physical circumcision wasn't enough? No, you've got to actually be circumcised in heart, which is repentance and faith. So um, I praise my Baptist brothers because they told us we need to preach the gospel to our kids. We need to call them to faith and repentance or they won't be saved. We can't just assume it. Okay, Dan, go ahead. Yes. So, uh, and by the way, a previous um, elder here named David Pope, uh, he had, him and his wife had twins, and the son died maybe a month, two months? I don't know how long. It was pretty close afterwards. And so, um, uh, David and I actually, uh, in the hospital, before William died, we baptized him. It's a kind of interesting thing, okay? Um, we didn't baptize him because if we didn't baptize him, he wouldn't be saved. We baptized him because we were believing in the covenant promises to the, uh, the parent and his children, okay? And we made this clear. In the hospital room, like, he, we, we went through the rubrics. We made sure that everybody in that room, we, Clark, you come down? Was it you? And, yeah. We had, from our church, we had some people come down, and we were in that room, and we were... Uh, you know, explaining to everyone present, and David wanted it explained to his family who was there, and even like nurses and other people what was going on. But here's how it works. And I deal with this because of my daughter sitting in the back of the room. She will never, barring some sort of miracle, ever profess faith in Jesus Christ. She'll just never do it. Her mind will not let her do that. Does that mean she can't be saved? No, certainly does not. So, but do, there are some people, good reformed people, who believe that every child of a believing parent is guaranteed salvation. And I'm, I'm okay, I think that's a legitimate position, I'm, but that's not where I stand. So you can, you can you, I believe that salvation is always a work of God's sovereign grace okay which means just like jacob and esau he's free to choose right so you have to accept that at the same time because of god's covenant promises not only to me but to my children i believe that as a believing parent without any evidence to the contrary so jesus jenny's not saying i don't believe right i have every right to believe that my child will be in glory with me. And so, and so I believe that. I, we talk about the time when we get to heaven and we're talking with Jeannie all the time. We, we, we have that. I think David and Jeannie will be talking about William and he, we're talking with William in glory. But I would say that an unbeliever who is not trusting Christ for their own salvation doesn't have that same assurance. Are you following me here? This is, this is where it gets hard. Some people want to say, oh, everybody, all kids go to heaven. I think all kids go to hell. 
Well, that well, you'd be surprised. They, but you'd be surprised. They, 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 like, I don't want to believe for my salvation, but I want my kid being saved. It, you know, it, it's an amazing thing. So, and I would always say, now here's the situation. I've tried to wrestle through all these in my mind. What if someone, young lady, had an abortion when they were unbelieving? Okay? And then later in life, comes to know Christ. And they are guilt-ridden. Is my child going to be forever in hell? That's a real question. It goes back to this like perpetual sin kind of thing. Like, have I doomed my child forever? And my position would be, God is sovereign over all. He knew he was going to save you. And even though in a time when you were rebelling against him, you had your child and you had them ch- uh, killed, God could... You don't know. God might save that, per- that child. And you should, you should, because you're believing now, you should believe in the covenant promises and trust that God will save that child, even prior. Without saying to God, if my child's not in heaven, you're a bad God. I wouldn't say that. You trust in the goodness of God. And that's what we do anyway with all of our kids. So uh, this is, this is uh, the, the confession, the catechism says, all elect infants dying in infancy will be saved. That's kind of a punt case, right? Because if they're elect, of course they're going to be saved. Um, so they don't, they don't make a, a judgment either way. All right, we've got to stop, but go ahead, Ken. You've got the last word. Ah, okay. They would fit it exactly into this. I, I, would, I would think you'd have very hope. Robin and I had a miscarriage before Jenny came along. Same principle. You have every right to believe that that child will be in heaven. You're not demanding that and telling God if, if he doesn't sovereignly elect them that he's somehow evil. But you are um, certainly have a right as a covenant-believing parent to believe in the salvation of your children. Now, okay, let's do this. We have a really wonderful opportunity tonight. I hope you guys will come out. This is We, we were kind of debating when we are going to do this. My friend Daryl, right here, uh, he's known him for 35 years. He's an elder in his church out in California. He actually goes to a, a, a Baptist-believing church. It's, I don't, it's not a Baptist church, right? It's, no, yeah. So doesn't baptize their children, you know. Um, so, but Daryl and I absolutely love each other. We have a very similar view on, on salvation and all these kind of things. I think it might be fun tonight to let you guys come out for our Sunday evening uh, Bible study and just do a Q&A. You can ask how Daryl works this through. You can ask how I work this through. And, and you know, just it'd be just kind of a fun conversation. So if you guys are, you know, just throwing that out to you guys, uh, we meet at 6. Uh, uh, I don't know much singing we'll do because our pianist is not here this morning, so she won't be here tonight. So... Uh, so we'll have a shortened time, a little bit of prayer, and then we'll have a Q&A if you guys want to do that. So let me close this in prayer. Father, the people outside are waiting to come in, and we pray that you would be merciful to us all. Help us to draw near to you as you draw near to us, and may your work of salvation um, just overwhelm us so that we would be like you. In Jesus' name, amen.